I've had patients who went from being homeless and having no connection with their family um, to um, having stabilizing, having a job, rebuilding those connections all within a six month time period. And those little stories of hope and that big impact on just on those people and such a short amount of time has really, um, I guess, empowered me to continue to do this work. Welcome to the podcast Breaking Free, produced by the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Family and friends who are trying to help a loved one struggling with substance abuse are facing a disjointed treatment system. There are flashy ads for expensive out-of-state residential facilities. Then there are 12-step meetings in a nearby church basement. Too often a doctor isn't even part of the discussion. What is really needed? And what works? And what can they afford? Dr. Nicole Gastala is playing a key role in the opioid crisis and the ongoing evolution of how the medical community addresses it. She helped start a program in a Midwest rural town to address a burgeoning opioid problem there, and recently moved to help expand addiction treatment services at Miles Square Health Centers at the University of Illinois Health in Chicago. She knows the treatment system many are facing, its limits, and its potential. In this interview, Dr. Gastala describes the efforts to increase treatment services and how to navigate the system as it is now. She describes medications that can help and the important role family and friends can play. We start with Dr. Gastala describing her daily work. I've been at um, UIC in Miles Square for about uh, four months now, and part of um, what I what I do there and part of my passion is integrating um, whole health within primary care setting, especially in underserved um, communities. And the the idea is that we integrate um, addiction treatment within primary care, so a patient can you know, come for their diabetes as well as get treated for um, opioid use disorder. And it really focuses on treating patients as a whole person rather than just, you know, one aspect of um, their care and by, you know, taking that whole person approach. You know, I think when, when people think of um, heroin addicts or people with an opioid use disorder, I think their presumption is that they're not going to the doctor on a regular basis, that when you have that image in your head, maybe it's someone, you know, begging for money on the corner of the street or who's homeless. Are you finding, and are doctors here finding that, that they are people who are coming to the doctor a lot and, and are just fully engaged in, or at least partially engaged in life enough to be keeping a job and, and having that normal kind of, I take care of myself enough to, to be going to a doctor? So just like there are functional alcoholics, there are functional heroin users, right? So after, at the very beginning when patients, you know, use opioids and then sometimes transition to heroin, they chase sometimes that initial high, right? Just like in the other podcasts of that patient. Um, but then after a while, they tra- chase normalcy, right? So they continue to use to maintain that feeling of connection with themselves and to not withdraw. So after a certain point of time, patients, when after the dependence and then sometimes addiction, then they, when they start, I guess, get, getting used to the, the high, they really are afraid of the withdrawal part, and that's why they continue to use. I have a lot of patients who continue to take care of their families, continue to work, and if you if you looked at them on the street, you wouldn't know that they had 
um, an opioid use disorder. And that's what was so surprising to me when I first started um, screening and integrating this within my practice, how it really is an equal opportunity disease, just like diabetes, just like hypertension. If you don't screen for it, you don't know. And then it puts patients in a very difficult situation because they don't know who to turn to for help. And so by integrating that as part of your practice and recognizing that addiction is like any other chronic disease, um, it really allows the opportunity and makes a safe place for a patient to be able to express um, that they have um, an opioid use disorder. When you're when you're talking to general practitioner doctors, doctors who are not who do not specialize in addiction, and that isn't their primary focus, um, about screening for this, treating it, um, um, getting qualified to do MAT, are they? Um, what's been their reaction? Um, are they unsure of how to handle this issue? Do they? Um, are they saying, you know, oh wow, I I know I do have a lot of people with this problem, but I, I haven't been sure how to like really um, treat it myself. So part of it has been being unsure, not knowing the different steps. How do you integrate it? A lot of it's not that they don't want to help patients. It's just they don't know how. How do you go about getting your waiver training? How do you integrate it within your practice? Um, the logistical component, how do you accept referrals? Who do you refer to for therapy? Those are the logistical challenges um, that make it, you know, that first step of initiating within your practice um, can be really challenging. Um, But when I talk to providers, I just try to say that it's actually one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in medicine. Um, You can treat diabetes for years and it's and it's probably going to still continue to progress, you know, even if you do your best. Mm-hmm. But I've had patients who went from being homeless and having no connection with their family um, to um, having stabilizing, having a job, rebuilding those connections all within a six-month time period. And those little stories of hope and that Im- big impact on just on those people and such a short amount of time has really, um, I guess, empowered me to continue to do this work as well as um, encourage our other providers um, and clinicians to do it as well because you can really make a big difference in someone's life and and, and a disease that is just like any other chronic disease that we treat. Sometimes, um, especially depending on where someone works, They say, well, I don't want those kinds of patients in my practice because just like you said, they have this vision of what um, uh, someone who has an addiction looks like. And the reality is is that it can be the person sitting next to you. There are so many people who have problems with addiction. And if you talk more about it, who, who in their family has not had someone with an addiction, a friend, a relative? And when you talk about these patients, rather than looking them as, you know, with this stigma of, oh, you're an addict or, oh, you're an user or abuser that um, our implicit bias and society sort of puts on them, it's really important to look at them as a human being and someone who has a chronic disease just like someone who has diabetes and really take that implicit bias out of how we, we treat these patients. Is that really possible going from homeless to 
having a job and and being back with your family in six months there's there's that kind of so if i'm someone who uh is working with someone who's homeless like is how realistic is is it to that there is real hope in in overcoming or at least stabilizing this this disease so it really depends on the patient, just like anything else, how long they've had um, an issue with opioid use or how badly they've damaged their, you know, the relationships with their family. Um, and there's been a, I've had a couple patients who have, um, a few patients who've done, you know, really well and stabilized and were able to, and that's part of the process of when you work with patients, you, you meet them where they're at and you say, okay, what are your goals? So once you stabilize someone on medication and Therapy. What are your What are your goals? I've never had a patient that said, you know, my my goal in life was to was to become someone who has a problem with addiction. It just does not. That's not like what they dreamed about when they grew up, you know. Um, and so it definitely it depends on, of course, your patient population and the family support. But it is possible. It is really possible to make a difference. It really is um, within that patient's ability too. It's just about supporting them along the way and what kind of support avenues they have. If they if there's a you know UIC has a better housing program, there are, there are um, opportunities within Chicago and Illinois where patients can have access to helping with job services with housing and then the therapy component you know a lot of um, NA and AA and those um, those group um, models really focus on rebuilding you know those relationships what I've heard is that it's um, the system is very as it stands now and you're and you're trying to improve that um, very hard to navigate there's this you know um, you, you have inpatient treatment, you have outpatient treatment. It's, you know, it may not be close. It may take a while to get in. You need to go to detox sometimes before you can get in. So how do you recommend people um, navigate this system effectively? What should they do on, you know, okay, I've convinced my, my friend or loved one um, to, to get help. What do I do now? Sure. So one option is to call the Illinois um, helpline, which then gives you a list of, um, and you can talk to a person, and they'll give you a list of um, therapy centers or methadone clinics or buprenorphine, whichever one you're looking for. So that's one option that you can do if you have no, if you haven't had any access to the healthcare system whatsoever, and this is kind of your first place to start. Another option is to talk, if you have a primary care doctor, talk to your primary care doctor and have them help you set up and navigate that process. Um, you can look on the SAMHSA website, which um, has a list of the providers who provide um, buprenorphine in your area. And then um, the best thing is to use that helpline to try to find a place that's convenient for you and then has an opening within. And it, you know, it depends on which treatment options you want. There are three FDA approved medications that you can use for um, opioid use disorder. You can use methadone, which is a pure agonist. You have to go to a, a federal um, licensed center, a methadone clinic for that. There is buprenorphine, which usually comes as buprenorphine naloxone and that's a partial agonist, and that's a film or a dissolvable tablet. And then you have naltrexone, which is a complete antagonist, and that it comes as a 30-day in injectable or an oral tablet. So those are the three different medications that are available. And when we talk about medications, 
methadone, buprenorphine, they're not a substitution for addiction. It's not just giving one medication for another. That is a definitely a myth about. Um, it's not switching whiskey for beer. <laughs> no, it's okay. not. So um, when someone is treated for an opioid addiction, the dosage of the medication is really just to stabilize them. It's not to get high. So it's to help with the cravings. It's to help with the withdrawal symptoms so that they cannot be constantly thinking about where they're going to get their next um, dose of heroin. It's really about stabilizing them so that they can engage in therapy. They can engage in rebuilding their life. They're not, they can focus on other things besides just that, where am I going to to get the next dose. Um, and it really allows the patient's brain to heal while they work towards recovery. And so first, the first step is to really, if you want to do medication as part of it, decide which one works best for you or fits your, um, your lifestyle and your goals. And you can work with your you know, primary care doctor to help decide that, and they can help you navigate the system. In terms of therapy, whether you're gonna do inpatient, intensive outpatient, extensive outpatient, group visits, um, or group model, that really depends on where, um, usually you go to an intake first at, um, uh, at a therapy center, and they'll decide based off of your needs what would be best appropriate for you and have that shared decision making with you, what is going to be best to help you towards your recovery and what is gonna be best that will fit with your life. If you have you know, a full-time job and a family to take care of, you know, it might be really hard to do inpatient or, or intensive outpatient. You may have to do, it may be better, more appropriate to do one-on-one um, -on -one therapy sessions you know, in addition to medication, if that's if that's your choice, is is the general goal to do medication assisted treatment, whether it be suboxone, methadone, or naltrexone, in combination with with some level of treatment, um, some level of you know meetings, some number of times a week where you're working on your um, um, other kind of mental issues that that may trigger you to to, to use more or use again. Is that the yeah. where where you want to be? You want to be on both of those things. So the best. Um, so the evidence shows that medication in conjunction with therapy has the best outcome. Therapy alone um, tends to not be as effective as not as doing methadone or um, buprenorphine or naltrexone in addition to it. Um, in terms of the therapy, the amount of therapy, well, that's really dependent on the person, just like it is with mental health too. So sometimes they require more versus less. It really depends on where what the patient needs in terms of their supportive network. How are they? How do they deal with stress? How? Um, what's their coping mechanism and coping skills? A lot of the times, those those group you know, group support um, can really help patients when they're having, you know, the challenging times in their life where they're at risk for relapse. And so those, the group model, NAAA, um, whichever kind of works best to help support you where you're at. Um, if you are very resilient and have great coping, you know, skills, then you may not need as much of that as, um, as other patients do. So it's really about finding what um, fits your, I guess, recovery the best. So step one is finding someone who can help you navigate through what your loved one needs or what you need and then how to go about getting it, right? So whether that's your your own doctor that um, maybe they can do it or maybe they can get you to someone who can do that with you 
And if you don't have that option, then it's the helpline and the SAMHSA list and reaching out to a treatment provider that's that's near you. Yeah, that would be the best. Is there uh, like a gold standard of inpatient is always better than outpatient and outpatient um, programming is always better than just going to a, NA meetings? Uh. Yeah. So, again, the, the data is not um, – it really depends just like anything else on the individual and kind of where they're at. The gold standard is really being able to offer um, medication-assisted treatment plus therapy, some sort of behavioral um, therapy services. And, again, it's really to meet the patients where they're at. Um, and sometimes patients aren't quite ready for therapy yet. Um, they're not really in that – in, in that state where they're ready to actively engage, and that's okay too. Sometimes it's about harm reduction, so decreasing the number of overdoses, decreasing the number, the, the, the amount of um, heroin that they use, the frequency of use, um, clean needles. This is also a part of the spectrum of when we are treating patients with opioid use disorder. And in terms of what is the best therapy? Well, that just really depends on the patient. Um, sometimes um, the sometimes an inpatient would really be the best for them. Sometimes an outpatient. There's really no one way, which is why it's so important to you know go to that first visit with a therapy center so that they can do an intake with you and have that shared decision making. I've had discussions with a number of people who have OUD, um, and they have been very. Uh, resistant to being involved in Suboxone or Methadone or Naltrexone. They just want to be off of opioids altogether. They want to be done. And they are worried that doing that is just prolonging their addiction. What would you say to them? Sure. I would say that the most important thing is allowing your brain to heal. If you think about when you use heroin or another Um, I guess, short-acting, high-intensity substance like that, you get these peaks that go up in terms of, you know, how how fast the euphoria hits you, how short it, it is, and then it comes down. And then you get dopamine depletion in your brain during that time. Methadone and um, buprenorphine really just help your brain heal. So you kind of get this steady state of, of medicine. Um, are you physically dependent on it? During a period of time, yes, just like you would be if you were on another opioid or, I mean, or if you're a diabetic, you're physically dependent on insulin, right? You need that um, um, during that time. So it would be the same sort of concept. So it really allows your brain to heal so that you can engage um, in therapy and go towards your you know, recovery and rebalance. You can do rapid detox. The challenge is, is the evidence shows that those who do um, rapid t- detox tend to relapse within a few weeks after. And that's the danger because at that point, you, you're, um, you've reset your tolerance and you're at increased risk of overdose during that time. And so the studies really show that you really need at least a minimum of a year on buprenorphine or methadone. And then if you want to, you can tape, you know, taper off at that time and do a slow taper. Um, but it really depends on the patient. Some I've had some patients taper off and do really well and not relapse. I've had other ones try to taper off and relapse, and then we restart, and that's okay. Um, I've had other patients who are like, you know what, I'm stable, I'm working, um, I can take care of my feel- family, I feel like I'm good at this level, and then we just decrease to the lowest effective dose that makes 
makes them feel and then we you, you revisit it whenever they feel ready or if they want to and some people need it for a lifetime just like any other medication or insulin or a medicine to treat your um, hypertension. So it's important that we look at medication-assisted treatment like a medication for a chronic disease and not like um, just another substance to replace heroin. It's really a part of the treatment process. And the evidence shows that it does really help a patient in terms of their recovery. Now, Trexone's a little bit different and is a, a good option for patients who have already with, um, tapered off, who have already detoxed, you have to be off for about seven to 10 days of an opioid. And what it does is it binds to the receptor and is what's called an antagonist, so it completely blocks it. So if you try to use heroin or other um, substances, it, it blocks the receptor so you can't really get high. What it really does is help with cravings. So it helps the patient if they're if their life is, you know, sometimes, you know, challenging and they're starting to get that those those feelings again, um, they won't necessarily crave crave heroin the same way, or if they're around it, they won't crave it in the same way that they did before. Could you briefly walk through, like, what are the pros and cons to each? And I, and I don't mean to dwell on it too much, but naltrexone kind of sounds like a like a magical magical pill like that's the way to go um but i'm sure there's downsides um you know for some people so like what's the we've talked about the benefits of each what are kind of the reasons you wouldn't want to go with one of those three or or individually those sure three. Yeah. so naltrexone um again it's not the best medication if you're currently using because you have to go through the withdrawal, which is what many patients are afraid of. So naltrexone is really great if you um, if you haven't used for at least seven to ten days. So where is that more most applicable? Well, after they've done a detox program, after they have um, been inpatient in the hospital, or they've been um, incarcerated, and they didn't if they didn't have access to buprenorphine or methadone um, there, that would be a good place to be able to. Um, a good choice to be able to use naltrexone but the downside is is you will precipitate a withdrawal so meaning that if you're currently using opioids and you try to use um, naltrexone it will cause you to withdraw another benefit of um, naltrexone is that it's um, also fda approved for alcohol use disorder so if you also have um, uh, challenges with alcohol it can help um, with the cravings for that too but that is one of the downsides of naltrexone it also um, if you stop using it and try to um, you know use heroin or uh, another opioid again your tolerance is much lower because it kind of resets so it's really important for patients to know that if they're on naltrexone and they decide to stop it um, that they are at increased risk they cannot go back to using the same amount that they did before so those are the two kind of um, downsides of it is you can't you don't really want it's not the best one when you're actively using and it resets your tolerance level and then uh, with suboxone and methadone are there reasons you that those are not favorable to certain individuals? Sure. So it depends on the program, but sometimes um, it depends on the methadone clinic. So sometimes they'll have you come in for daily dosing until you hit a certain point and then you can do take-home doses. The challenge with that is um, if you don't live close to one, it'd be kind of hard to go every day. So for example, um, when I worked in a rural practice, it, the closest methadone clinic was an hour away. That's very 
hard for people to do six or seven days a week at the beginning if they have to, you know, get to work. That's a, you know, four hour drive um, round trip. So depending on, you know, where you live, what their what their hours are, that can be um, a challenge in the beginning. Um, also, methadone, if you have certain, you know, heart problems, you don't want to take that um, particularly long QT syndrome. So that can kind of make it not as um, the most beneficial medication if you have that. Um, but it does have a lot of evidence for um, for good use. And then for buprenorphine, the challenge with buprenorphine is because it's a partial agonist, um, so it kind of binds to the receptor, it also has a little bit of an antagonist sort of um, approach as well, meaning that if a patient isn't in somewhat of a withdrawal and they take it, then they will um, it will precipitate a withdrawal. So when we um, when we have patients either do a home induction or an in-office induction, we have them get to a certain level of withdrawal. Not they don't have to be in complete withdrawal, but what we do is scoring system called the cow scoring, which is an opioid withdrawal clinical opioid withdrawal scale, and it, their level has to be about a seven or eight. So they have to be somewhat uncomfortable before they take their first dose. Otherwise, they will. Um, knock all the opioids off the receptor and precipitate a withdrawal and then they feel really awful um, but if you do it right and you do it when you're appropriate when it's appropriate to take it then you don't have that risk of um, withdrawal with it so if i have a loved one um, or a friend family member who is um, actively using you know is high as we're discussing you know okay are you ready to change will you do this mm -hmm. um is it sounds like the first step is not stop using right now um the first step is like use less and let's get you to a doctor or like what do you do in that moment what are you asking them to do so I think the first step is asking the patient, are they ready to make a change? Mm -hmm. Or are they ready to at least have the conversation about harm reduction? So if, say, they're not ready to stop using yet, but then maybe it's important to have them um, meet with those um, the different opportunities around the city to do clean needle exchanges, um, have access to naloxone so that they decrease their risk of overdose. So that's kind of the first step is making sure you're meeting them where they're at. And the first is harm reduction is not, you know, it's not con condoning or condemning. It's just making them as safe as possible. So that's decreasing the risk of overdose and decreasing the risk of um HIV and hepatitis C transmission and other communicable diseases through um, IV drug use, as well as decrease the risk of infection, right? So that's the first step. If they're ready to make a change and they say, you know, I'm really, I, I would like to um, stop using, then the next step is getting either calling the helpline, you know, calling, a, you know, your doctor's office, um, and then discussing, going in and discussing the different treatment options, discussing whether medication-assisted treatment would be the right option for you, would inpatient be the right option, having that um, discussion to see what would fit best with, the, with that patient and what that patient wants. And um, just because someone is 
is high and using doesn't mean that they can't make that decision. It's just a matter of are they ready to engage? Are they ready to make that change? And it's important to meet them where they're at and support them in that process so that when they are ready to make that change, then they already they know what services are available. They know that um, that there is options out there. And I think that's what it's very hard for families, physicians, healthcare workers, um, friends of those um, who have substance use disorder, is they may be ready for the change, but the patient may not be yet. And so it's about meeting them where they're at and, and being compassionate and empathetic and understanding and supporting them so that when they are ready to make that change, that they have all the tools that available to them. And it's not in a, a stigma sort of um, condescending way. So maybe one of the, it sounds like one of the best things someone could do is, is learn the issue, um, study up and, and start to understand, um, the treatment world and the treatment system and maybe pre-navigate that a little bit before, uh, while that person is getting to the point that they're willing to to walk into treatment or start taking a medication. So then when that happens, that's kind of lined up, or at least you know what you're walking into. Yeah, exactly. Um, there And there's a lot of materials available, as well as, again, you know, use your doctor. If they if a patient has a doctor, get them engaged in care, because they can really help them navigate um, the healthcare system and the treatment system. They can help them find um, a treatment program that will accept their insurance, um, will help them, if they can provide MAT, they'll be able to do it within the office, or if they find that methadone is the, you know, best option for them, they'll help them get connected to a methadone clinic as well. So again, it's really important that the patient and the family has as much of that information as possible so that they can make the most informed decision that really um, meets the patient where they're at and is going to meet their goals and needs because my goal for a patient is not necessarily what their goals are and we really have to work together in order to help that make sure that we're meeting the patient's goals so one thing um many of these many people um don't have insurance um particularly you know if they are deep into an addiction may have lost their job mm -hmm. may not um, have their own insurance may be older and not able to be on parent insurance if that it would have been an option if they were younger. What do you do when you don't have insurance? Sure. So I work um, at Miles Square, which is a uh, clinic um, with UI Health, and it's a federally qualified health center. The nice thing about working at federally qualified health centers is we see patients regardless of their ability to pay. So um, if a patient is interested in, um, in getting care, they can you know, go online, find an FQHC that's close to them. There are insurance specialists there that can help them if they qualify, sign up for Medicaid or one of the MCOs. If they don't qualify, then there's a sliding scale fee because we're part of our um, our mission and our, our existence is through um, 
block grant funding, so taking care of patients, again, regardless of their ability to pay. And so that may be, you know, it's a, you know, five or $10 visit rather than the, you know, 120 or whatever based off of their, at their sliding scale. So there are, it's really important that you know that there are options for your, for the patients as well as family and friends, that there are places that they can go even if they don't have insurance. Um, and also some of the methadone clinics and some of the other treatment centers are also state funded or federally funded and they have sliding scale fee options as well. So I would not use lack of insurance. It is a barrier and it does make it more challenging, but that doesn't mean that you don't have access. It just means you may there may be less options for you and you'll have to go to certain places, but there are options that you can go to and um, no one is turned away. In, in your experience, um, the people who who you've worked with and helped them navigate the system, how important is family or friend support? Is it is it reasonable to expect the person who's suffering OUD to be able to get through this system and get themselves um, stable or clean mm-hmm. without anyone actively setting up the appointments for them and, and doing a lot of the legwork? How successful could someone be just doing it on their own? I would say that their success rate tends to be higher, right? If they have that support in place, can does that mean that they can't do it? No, I've had patients who've come on their own and done it because they were just in that point. But I can't tell you how many wonderful social workers, ER docs, internal med from the hospital who have called me and said, this patient's alone, they have opioid use disorder, um, they have this terrible infection, they want, they're ready to make a change. Can you, come, can you come over and help them or help them connect to care? So you also have people within the healthcare system that also care a lot about these patients and really want to help them have access. The family component and friends are very, are very important, but they can still do it. You can still get help without that, but it does definitely um, so I would say, you know, don't give up on your uh, on your loved one. Um, support them in a way that's safe for you. Um, so maybe that is not having them live in your home, but maybe it's helping them get to the appointment. So knowing those boundaries on what you, you can help them with. Maybe it's um, storing the medication for them, watching them take their daily dose of buprenorphine if that's the medication that they choose, um, and helping them stay um, I guess, I don't know what the right word for it is, but um, I guess help them stay on track with with their goals and help them um, stay on track with their medications. So there are ways that you, you can help them with, without, with still having that, you know, safe, um, that safety put up because if they have, you know, violated some of those um, relationships in the past. Um, but remember that the patient has to, it has to be their choice. So people aren't successful in therapy because they're, or in treatment because their their wife or their, you know, daughter or their mother or brother want them. It's, they have to want it themselves. That's really what's going to help, um, help them. But that doesn't mean that we can't help them navigate the system when they are ready for change. And again, having that harm reduction. So say your brother's not ready to make a change yet and he, he still wants to use, then make sure he's access to clean needles. Make sure you have a naloxone kit at home. Um, 
and with the pa- and with your brother whenever, so that if he does accidentally overdose, there is a, a treatment there that will save his life. And when he's ready to make that change, he will. And knowing that he has someone to go to who can help him navigate that system, definitely, definitely helps. But there are um, physicians, social workers, um, nurse practitioners, nurses who are also. Um, very dedicated to helping um, patients navigate the system. So all it is is just sometimes saying, I'm, I need help, can you please help me? And um, kind of let us help you through that, that process. To find treatment options in Illinois, please call 833-234-6343 or visit helplineil.org. For treatment options across the United States, please call 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. For information on this podcast and other efforts in Cook County, please visit cookcountysheriff.org. Thank you for listening to this installment of Breaking Free. For episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play.